Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. What are some of the characteristics of how life solves problems? Novelty. That's one of the really amazing things about it. Another amazing thing is that these solutions have been solved in context, meaning what's good for life, what's good for the earth, wins, gets carried on into the next generation, does well in the market. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. Einstein famously said that God does not play dice with the universe, but we are. Every four years, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature compiles the Red List, the most authoritative guide to the status of biological diversity, and it shows that we are running evolution in reverse. The 2008 list included more than 44,000 species, of which a whopping 40% are either extinct or threatened with extinction. That's one in four of the world's mammals, one in three amphibians, one in seven birds. It's a tragic measure of human failure to sustain conditions conducive to life for soaring numbers of our fellow travelers on planet Earth. Biologist Janine Benyus believes we're shattering the very mirror of nature that can teach us how to live in this place in a way that lasts. She says it's not too late to take our lessons from the web of life itself. In fact, it's crucial to our future. We have wondrous things to learn, for example, by looking at how old-growth forests grow. They've got these little pulsing bits of life where there's a wind gap, where the old trees come down, and there's abundant ideas underneath, right? That's what it is. Animals, plants, and microbes are consummate engineers. They've found what works here on Earth after 3.8 billion years of research and development. Their design failures are fossils, and what remains living around us contains the secrets to survival. By imitating how nature does it, the science of biomimicry is not only solving real-world problems, it's teaching us the priceless value of the wisdom of the web of life. In the next half hour, we'll hear from three leaders in the mushrooming field of biomimicry who are studying nature's blueprints. This is What's Good for Life Wins, the Biomimicry Scientific Revolution. I'm Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Janine Benyus is the godmother of biomimicry. 
As others tally up our losses, she's compiling another list. In fact, she's written a new book and developing a website called asknature.org that explores thousands of nature's strategies, recipes, and designs for addressing the most difficult dilemmas of our times. Benyus is an innovation consultant and co-founder of the Biomimicry Guild. She spoke at a recent Bioneers conference about a year-long study where the Guild researched and cataloged plant and animal adaptations that point the way to innovative solutions in chemistry, medicine, energy, and more. We went through the biological literature. We had a list of life's greatest sustainability challenges on our left hand, and in our right hand we had scientific papers, and we filtered through, we found over 2,100 phenomenal ideas, things that some of them have been mimicked, things that should be mimicked and have not yet been, invitations. The Guild study found 49 new ways that nature generates energy, new to us, that is, 23 new ways to absorb water, and 44 new ways to store it. They discovered 58 new ways to manage extreme temperatures, 146 new ways nature does water-based chemistry, and 42 new ways to cooperate. It's a fantastic display of natural genius that Benyus says we humans are just beginning to learn how to emulate. Biopower is a company from Australia that's learning to harvest wave energy the way giant kelp do, because holding yourself in a stream, especially if it's an ocean, is a good way to get broken. So they've learned to create wave energy harvesters that yield. Electric eels, 600 volts of electricity, okay, with no mercury, no lead, no taking your batteries to the recycling place and hoping that, you know, they don't kill anyone as they get broken down. People are actually looking, how do you take materials, bodily materials, and create a charge. How do you store a charge with bodily materials? The first things they're looking at it for is to have medical devices like artificial retinas powered by your own juice. But hopefully, you know, I'm hoping that you, you can put your palm on your laptop and it'll charge up. <laughs> the thermoelectric effect is when you have a change in temperature and it creates an electrical flow, which would be great, say, in cars, like hybrid cars. You could take the heat of the engine and turn it into electricity, right? Be great. Now, we can do that, but we mine all kinds of nasties to do the thermoelectric effect. Janine Benyus suggests instead that we look at the way the black-tipped reef shark senses minuscule temperature differences in the ocean and creates an electric current signaling the proximity of prey. Just one of thousands of natural models, systems, and processes that can inspire scientists, inventors, and designers. People like Jason McLennan, who believes buildings should be like flowers. Searching for a state of balance between the natural and built environments, this international leader of the green architecture movement is CEO of the Cascadia Region Green Building Council, located in America's Pacific Northwest. The Living Building Challenge is a new initiative that my organization, uh, Cascadia, has launched as a challenge to the building industry to think about how to go further than we have ever gone before in the building industry and try to approach the level of environmental impact that you see nature providing. So if you think about 
a beaver dam or a hornet's nest or a termite mound, structures that are made by organisms to provide habitat and to provide other functions for their, for their society, so to speak. Um, the, the environmental impact, there is some. When a beaver builds a dam, it does flood an area and create impact, but the net benefit is greater biodiversity and greater health and more opportunities, more niches for, for other organisms to live. We're the only species that when we build our habitat, it has the opposite effect that we create a net negative in terms of opportunities for diversity and, and health in nature. And so the question is, what would a standard need to look like? What would we have to do in order to build a living building, a building that really is like that? And so what we talk about is that buildings should be like flowers, because if you think about the metaphor, they're both fixed to place. They're both rooted literally and figuratively to place. And a flower is habitat as well for other microorganisms. It has to get all of its energy from the sun, has to get all of its water needs from the rain that falls on the site that it has. It has to treat its own waste. It can't be toxic and polluting. And it tracks the sun. It opens and closes. It responds actively to the environmental conditions around it. And above all, it's beautiful and inspiring. And so that's a perfect metaphor for what our buildings need to do. And that is, in essence, what the living building challenges. So we've like LEED, but it's a very different system than LEED, but it's a similar market strategy where we're trying to show designers, developers, building owners, if you want to build a building that has that kind of healthy impact on the environment, then these are the things that you need to do. In 2006, the Cascadia Region Green Building Council issued a bold challenge to all building owners, architects, design professionals, engineers, and contractors. Go beyond LEED certified standards that address only green materials and minimizing carbon emissions. Instead, make living buildings that meet or exceed the ecological services nature provides. This living building challenge is pushing the current standards for green buildings right to the edge of possibility. Jason McLennan views the challenge as an act of optimism and faith in the marketplace, and design teams from around the world have joined the race for the ultimate, truly sustainable building. When we return, growing soil in the Amazon, and more from the godmother of biomimicry, Janine Benyus. This is What's Good for Life Wins, the Biomimicry Scientific Revolution. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Well, how do I stay warm in the cold and the snow? Ask a snowshoe hair. How do I travel over the Gulf of Mexico? And how can I build a house under the sea? Ask an abalone. How do I get my friends to listen to me? You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org. As mind-opening and inspiring as it is, biomimicry 
is more than gee whiz technology. It's a way of seeing the world. The core idea is that nature has already solved many of the problems we are grappling with. Evolution is a truly marvelous designer. For example, in natural systems, there is no waste. All waste is somebody else's food. Indigenous cultures have long used this kind of ancient knowledge to support their communities. Not so in most recent human systems. We're burying our communities in waste. And that is food for thought at a company called Eprida, where Bob Hawkins is head research chemist. The company is working to transform agricultural waste into diesel fuel and fertilizer with the goal of stabilizing, then reversing global greenhouse gas emissions. Hawkins is a leading expert on an artificial human-made soil known as biochar, or terra preta. Here's an interesting story. I don't know how many of you have heard of terra preta. What happened was in the 1400s, Arianus went through the Amazon, and in his journal he recorded vast civilizations, miles long, just amazing cities. And the next Europeans that went back, there was nothing. And they all thought he was a liar. And that kind of became the uh, El Dorado, like the magic city of gold that had vanished. Well, what happened was that recently, Brazil divided up a bunch of plots and then it, basically a farming experiment. And they gave all these different plots of land to different farmers to see how they would do. Some of the farmers terribly failed. As it turns out, the yellow clay in Brazil, you cannot grow anything in it. Um, the rainforest actually grows on top of it, not in it. That's why once you remove the rainforest, the nutrients are there for about two years, and then that soil is now dirt. It's useless. And then they cut down the next plot of rainforest. Well, some farmers were amazingly successful, and they had brown soil instead of yellow clay. And what they had found out after a lot of research is they found out that the native Indians that lived there up until 1400 when they were killed by disease, they actually took charcoal and put it in their fields. And what this did was this allowed for the intensive agriculture that's required for such a large civilization. Part of the reason that it was believed this civilization could have never existed is because the native soil cannot support that type of civilization. Now they actually sell it. They dig up their precious topsoil and sell it. Why would they do this is a good question. A researcher named Bill Woods was down there, and he asked him, why are you digging up your topsoil and selling it? And they said, well, that's easy. It grows right back. He said, what? He said, it's 40 centimeters thick. We sell the top 20 centimeters, and 20 years later, it's 40 centimeters thick again. So this soil that had been amended with charcoal, you know, up to 500 years ago, the topsoil grows at a centimeter a year. In the United States, you would be lucky to get that in 100 years. In Japan, after 30 years of government-funded research and development, adding charcoal to the soil has become standard agricultural practice. It is a practice that mimics plant-soil relationships found in nature. A reason to put charcoal in the soil when you're making energy. I know it seems kind of strange that you would take coal-based thing that you think of as energy and bury it. Well, um, it comes down to not being greedy. Yes, we could take all of the energy, but then what do we give back? Um, we're not giving anything back. 
to emulate this tree here or a lot of plants, what they do is they make photosynthate and photosynthesis. They send about roughly 50% of that goes down to the roots. And of that, I believe it's about 50% of that, the roots actually send out into the soil. They send sugars, they just give them away. And um, in return, the soil bacteria and fungi eat those sugars and move in next to the roots and then give them the nutrients that they can obtain by themselves. So it's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship. The plant could use all the energy it gets from the sun, but then it wouldn't have any food. So that's kind of how we look at it. We could use all the energy that we could get from biomass fuels, but then we won't have any food either. Bob Hawkins. Unearthing ancient wisdom, asking how would nature do it. The innovators of biomimicry are going back to nature's operating instructions, adapting the genius of nature to the vexing challenges of our time. The good news is that the early 21st century is experiencing a huge starburst of biomimicry research and design application. Biologist, author, and innovation consultant Janine Benyus has been tracking biomimicry projects for decades. In 1990, I started collecting articles. I started to ask, who is consciously trying to emulate these incredible strategies and recipes and designs? And what I would do, and still do, is look through the scientific literature for interesting things that pop up and then take those keywords and put those through the patent database to see if somebody's actually tried to, to go to the point of mimicry and then actually go to the SEC filings and see if companies have come up. So I've just been watching this procession. And let me give you a few statistics about the field of biomimicry. Richard Bonzer did a study of the worldwide patent database from 1985 to 2005, and he looked for the terms bio-inspired, biomimetic, biomimicry. He found a, um, an increase in patents on 93 times increase, factor of 93. That's one powerful indicator of the potential of biomimicry. Here's another, a pattern recognition study of that same database led by zoologist Julian Vincent at the University of Bath in England. They looked at the patent database for patterns about how we as human beings solve problems. And given a certain problem set, like you want to make something lightweight but strong, say an airplane fuselage, we've solved it in a number of different ways throughout history, of the patent history, and there are patterns to that. He started to do that same exact analysis on nature's technologies, the rest of the natural world, other organisms. And you would think to yourself, well, there's probably a pretty large overlap between the way other organisms have solved things and how we've solved things. And you'd be wrong. As it turns out, there's only a 12% overlap. So 88% of the time, when you go to solve a problem and you look into the biological literature, you're going to be surprised by the solution. Novelty. That's one of the really amazing things about it. Another amazing thing is that these solutions have been solved in context, meaning what's good for life, what's good for the earth, wins, <laughs> gets carried on into the next generation, does well in the market. Um, so you've really got a very nice solution set there. The other thing that Julian looked at was the way, what are, what are some of the characteristics of how life solves problems? 
and compared to the way we've solved problems. And he found that, and this won't surprise you either, he found that what we tend to do is throw, throw materials at a problem, bulk materials, lots of materials, and energy. We tend to throw energy at a problem um, because we've had some very cheap fossil fuel energy for a long time now. The rest of life tends to use information instead of materials and tends to use design, actually, like shape. Instead of using a whole bunch of materials, you put a design to that shape like an I-beam instead of a column, <laughs> instead of a, a massive beam. Biomimicry is essentially an innovation methodology. Biomimicry is about adopting an ethic that can bridge ancient wisdom with technological innovation, guided by respect, receptivity, and resilience. Janine Benya says it's essential to quiet our human cleverness and recover a sense of awe and wonder. Then we'll be able to learn from, emulate, and conserve life's genius to create a healthier, truly sustainable planet. Life's most innovative design is that it creates conditions conducive to life. For me, and this is what I was saying to the folks at IUCN, this is a new way of viewing and valuing biodiversity. I told them, I said, you know, when I give talks like this, and then I turn to the audience and I say, do you think we should conserve biodiversity? Yeah. And I tell them, you know, people laugh in that sort of tears in your eyes kind of laugh. Of course. You know, of course. There's these four steps I think about in biomimicry. There's that quieting human cleverness, that listening, that emulating what you hear, actually trying to do as a leaf does. Oh my gosh, is that humbling. But then there has to be this fourth part, and it's the part in which we say thank you. It's the part in which we put our tobacco out at the corners of our teepee. It's the part in which we remember what it is to be mannerly towards the rest of the natural world and to say thank you for the ideas that they gifted us with. And so we at the Biomimicry Institute, we're starting a program called Innovation for Conservation in which we ask the companies that are doing this work to donate a percentage of their proceeds to conserve the habitat of the organism that inspired them. So check it out. It's a good idea. I mean, it's, a, it's just saying thank you. And we need to practice that as a culture. The other thing that we're up to is something you guys can get involved in, I hope. It's called asknature.org. What it is is all biological information, this is our dream, all biological information organized by function so that designers, the people who are making our world or remaking our world, when they say, how do I adhere without toxic glues? They put in adhere and up comes geckos and up comes mussels and up comes vines and tendrils. And... Right. and we're, we're cooperating with E.O. Wilson of um, Encyclopedia of Life 
And so they've got all the scientists in the world doing a website for every species on Earth. And as they upload their data, there's going to be a field that says, what can we learn from this organism? So we're going to have 1.5 million species, and we'll take that information, we'll put it on our website for the people who make our world. Anyway, my time, my time is precious. Um, and so are you. And let me just leave you with one more vision of who we can be as a species. I also just got back from New Zealand, my first time in New Zealand, and I met a woman who works for the Department of Conservation, and she told me about what she does in her volunteer time. There are all these birds that have predators um, that have come on, you know, the invasive species predators like a possum, and they're really, really fragile. They're in tough, tough straits. And sometimes, you know, they're down to 21 birds. What they do in their free time is they go out camping and they, they're nest sitters. They go out and they have an infrared wire set up at the nest. And when the mother bird or the father bird in the Kiwi's case gets up from the nest and leaves, it wakes them up, the, the person. They get up out of their sleeping bag, they go over to the nest and they watch. And sometimes they pull these little blankets that don't quite touch the, the egg, but they have these little blankets to keep the downdrafts. That's who we are. That's who we are, you know? So whatever your kiwi is, tuck it in for me. Janine Benyus, Bob Hawkins, and Jason McLennan, trusting in the genius of nature and human ingenuity. What's Good for Life wins the biomimicry scientific revolution. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling one 877 ear That's 877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Reference Media Group. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Amy Martin, the Missoula Coyote Choir, and Friends. 
at www.asktheplanetcd.org. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0109. Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.